Welcome to Podcast Therapist, presented by Virginia Family Therapy. I'm Sarah. I'm Caroline. And I'm Amanda. As three family therapists, we know how hard it is to feel like you're being the parent you want to be while juggling everyone's needs. We specialize in helping families just like you during the long days of multitasking and constant searching for the bar of success. Our podcast mixes expertise, real life advice, and embarrassing stories. Whose embarrassing story? Let's walk through this together. Hey, everyone, Meg, we are so excited that you are here. I am so excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So, you all, Meg is one of my oldest friends. We've probably known each other since we were 11. Meg had the best bangs in middle school (laughs) and the best jean shorts and chucks, just all of those things. Um, Thank you. Taking that with me to boost my confidence the rest of the day. (laughs) I see what I can do. And you're also a brilliant filmmaker. You created the short documentary Blood and Guts Exposing Endo, which is short for endometriosis. Yes. So do you want to tell us about endometriosis and just tell us what it is? Because I've seen the documentary and I loved it and it blew my mind how much I learned. So can you give us just like a brief background on what it is? Yes. Thank you so much for saying that. Endometriosis is an elusive chronic illness. It's invisible. And one in 10 people who are born with a uterus have it. So even if you think I don't need to know about that because I don't have it, I don't know anyone with it. It's so much more prevalent than you'd think. It's as common as diabetes, yet 64% of doctors admit that they know very little about it. So it's technically it's an illness where the cells similar to the lining of your uterus grow outside of your uterus. Okay, but what does that actually mean? It means that lesions form on different organ systems. And when you have your period, they have nowhere to go. They don't shed in the same way. So they continue to grow and get bigger and get a little bit more aggressive. And so they can actually behave like cancer where they invade organs. They can invade the wall of your bladder, your lungs, and they create such a smattering of different symptoms that it's very hard to track and find. So I think it's really important that some of the parents that are listening to this just pay a little bit of attention because you never know when that food allergy could be linked to something like this or the headaches that your 10 year old is getting is related to this. It's very prevalent and it's very hard to get diagnosed. So I have found that the empowering part is empowering patients and individuals to know our bodies and know what this does so we can advocate for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Can you slow that down? So Meg, your description, even just hearing about it, it sounds really painful, right? And yeah. My assumption is it that it gets more painful over time. Is that right? Like as you age? It is. I mean, it's every individual is so different. So I can't speak to other people's experiences because they range in such, you know, such different ways. But the longer you go without being diagnosed and the longer it's not treated, the longer it has to kind of infiltrate in your body. And that means it's infiltrating nerves and that can then cause like companion illnesses because your body's in distress and your body isn't is inflamed and you're dealing with pain from like tip to tush and literally from your your toes kind of cramping up to 
tightness in your shoulders over time. It gets really painful through the years. And because it's so different for each person, some people have really painful periods and some people have pain when they're not on their period. So it's a little bit elusive like that. So Meg, this is Sarah. I have about 17,000 questions to ask you all at once, but one of the questions I have to begin with is diagnostically, like when do people tend to see an onset? Is there like an early onset? Is there a later onset? And how, how do people really normally get diagnosed with this? How do, how do people figure out they even have this? That's one of the biggest challenges. Um, there's actually a 10-year diagnosis delay. Wow. So it is a decade for this illness to do some pretty intense damage. Um, I was not diagnosed until I was 37 years old, and I had been advocating for myself um, since I was a teenager. I had, Amanda, you might even remember this. I college. do I remember this. Intense okay. pain. Yes, you did. And it wasn't on my period, so I didn't necessarily equate it with that. I would have bad periods too, but I would have these intestinal spasms that would render me like immobile. I would get like white as a sheet. It was the only thing I'd ever miss like school for or college for because I was a dedicated theater major. <laughs> and, um, and so it, it, it really is one of the biggest challenges in this whole field is that there's a 10 year diagnosis delay. And we look at that and we say, okay, why is that? It's a far reaching problem. So the whole kind of system is broken. So wait, can we all, slow you down for one second? Because I, yes, this, I, you know, I'm fascinated about this system because it's especially around how people treat women. So I'm going to get all fired yes. up. Can we please talk? don't hesitate to slow me down? Please, well, I, I would get real fired up too. <laughs> I know. I'm like, we're going to go. But my, <laughs> like, can you talk more about what those early symptoms might be and what yes. they? Because we do have parents of a lot of teenage girls or women here that I think kind of really slowing it down. I don't want parents to hear this and be like, oh my gosh, I bet this is what's going on with my daughter. I want yes. them to have really good information so that they can Google it or take it to their doctor. So yeah, so go ahead, Sarah. Meg, can I say something? I just, okay, Amanda, just for a second. Let's, let's, I, when you said 10 year delay, I was all of a sudden thinking, can you imagine if depression or anxiety or attention deficit had a 10 year delay in diagnostics? Oh yeah. Like, holy cow. And the amount and of those damage. bad boys come along with it. You know what I mean? Like wow, anxiety and depression are right there when you're going through this, wow. you know? So, okay. So, yeah. So what are the early kind of basic symptoms? So the symptoms are very varied and they can be across a few different categories. So they can be headaches. They can be GI issues. There can be urinary issues. There can be... What? Physical. Give me an example of a urinary issue. You don't have to give uh, me an example of a GI issue. Frequency or like um, not being able to hold your bladder um, just having like, um, bladder infections. Um, just like, I mean, I, I, my, I feel like people used to make fun of me cause I would like literally run to the bathroom to pee like every 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's a huge symptom and sign of endometriosis. Um, painful periods, pain during ovulation, painful sex, pain after sex. And these are all things that can really affect your mental health. So in those 10 years of diagnosis delay, you're dealing with symptoms that are usually increasing with severity and they're expanding and having different types of symptoms. I would say GI issue seems to be one of the most common. Fatigue is very common. And I mean fatigue like you sleep for 12 hours and you 
cannot feel rested. Um, you're not lazy. You're not bad in bed. You're not, you know, mm-hmm. there's nothing gross about you. These are symptoms that are very common and very prevalent with the illness of, of endometriosis. And a lot of times GI issues, I went to the doctor and the nurse in elementary school most days, and it was chalked up to anxiety or mm-hmm. stress. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times people are experiencing that as well. But when everything is put on that, then we're not looking at what could maybe be some of the core issue causing that. So anyone who is missing school because their periods are painful, if anyone is missing work or activities or that is not normal amount of pain for your period. So that's a really big red flag right there. If you're looking at GI symptoms that you can't seem to figure out why, and it's not a food allergy, it's not a XYZ, GI symptoms are a really big tell. So it ranges. Oh, another symptom which doesn't affect until later in life is fertility. And so oftentimes a woman can be advocating for herself, and that is when they find it. But there's so many kids who are having um, symptoms and are experiencing distress due to this, and they deserve for us to be listening to them as well. Absolutely. I mean, I was just thinking of, um, I happen to treat a lot of trauma survivors, and Mm. a lot of the symptoms you're describing are common symptoms. And I often refer back to physicians, but I'm wondering if physicians are even looking for this, really. I have two clients right now who are exhibiting these symptoms. And I've sent them to the doctor and said, hey, explore this because, Meg, I'm friends with you and you have really schooled me up on what endometriosis is. So talk about what happens then when people go to the doctor, because I know that's a huge part of it. It really is. And I, I just applaud anyone who is going to doctors to advocate for themselves and I just encourage them to keep going because what happens is, um, in my experience and the experience of hundreds of people that I've talked to with this, is I went and advocated for myself. I've always been outspoken. I have never been afraid to speak up. And because it's just not known, it was really always chalked up to anxiety, stress. IBS is a really fun blanket term that people love to give, you know, when there's pain in the stomach or abdominal area and just chalk it up to irritable bowel syndrome. Um, So a lot of times doctors, they can be super well-meaning. They can want to treat you very well. They even can be listening and really advocating for you. But the problem actually comes from where doctors learn about what endometriosis is. So ACOG, the uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, the definition in that teaching is that a hysterectomy is the cure for endometriosis. Mm-hmm. And that's incorrect information. A hysterectomy will not do anything for endometriosis. And so even if you're a gynecologist who is well, you know, up on the latest reading and you know your stuff, you know, you have four years of school and there's just a teeny tiny bit of time devoted to endometriosis. And it's such a complex illness and it's so elusive that it really takes an endometriosis specialist who that's what they do. That's their whole job. Even great gynecologists aren't well-versed in this because they just can't be, you know? So I'm sure there are some doctors out there that are terrible and I've definitely met a few, but I've also had some wonderful doctors who really wanted the best for me, but they just weren't armed with the correct information. So my advice for any 
any patient or any parents listening to this is to find an endometriosis specialist. I actually have some links on endomission.org where you can go and specifically find safe doctors who are experts in this that have been vetted by endometriosis patients. So we, we're the ones that are saying they're cool, go to them, they know what they're talking about, and it's really worth the time and wait to see them and find out what the actual problem is. And what about for people of color or trans and non-binary folks? Because I know it's even harder, right, for their voices to be heard? It's, I mean, the barriers I faced as a white, privileged woman with uh, education Mm -hmm. and with insurance and with parents championing me, I had all the balls in my court, right? I had everything going for me. It took me until I was 37 and was struggling to conceive a child for anyone to hear me and listen to me. I have had it so much easier than black women, than the trans community, non-binary patients. Right away, first of all, black women are not even safe in doctor's cares in so many situations. They don't even feel safe or comfortable going to a hospital when they're experiencing such pain. So a lot of like the history of gynecology is based in the belief that the very incorrect belief that black women do not feel pain the same way that white women do. Mm-hmm. And some doctors even today admit that they still believe that. So there's dangerous, misguided thoughts around black women and the care that they're not getting. So believe black women, support black women. And then when you have people who are trans or non-binary, Endometriosis is gendered in the healthcare system, but it shouldn't be because it does not discriminate. If you are born with a uterus and or ovaries, one in 10 will absolutely have endometriosis. So the trans and non-binary community face additional hurdles. And I think it takes twice as long for black women to get a diagnosis than it does for white women. And that's part of why I wanted to use my pain to tell this story because Mm -hmm. I saw how much strife, struggle, and like anguish I've had to endure. And when I like kind of peeked into this world and saw I was actually privileged in it, it blew my mind. And I just wanted to talk with other people who have had it even harder to make sure that we were listening to them and believing them. Is there a, um, is there a screening tool or anything that the medical communities come up with for this or not quite yet? There's one way to get diagnosed and that is with a laparoscopic you know, a robot goes into you and takes a piece of your tissue and they send it out and get tested. Wow. So that's a huge barrier mm-hmm. right there. Yeah. That takes money. That's surgical. That's, I mean, a lot of people don't even want to do that to find out. But you can find some endometriosis specialists who, you know, when they give you the time to talk with you and to hear your history, I met with Dr. Iris Orbuck. And she gave me two hours of her time. She read my whole history. She could actually tell me just by hearing what, I, what I've experienced that I have it. But most doctors can't do that. Most patients have to get a laparoscopic. And it's, it's not a full-on surgery, but it's still a surgical procedure. So that's a huge barrier. Um, and we know that insurance is very, very challenging. Mm-hmm. So you don't have insurance to get that. And you're not even finding out what that is you can't even begin the process. And getting diagnosed is like kind of barely step one. It is a long road. It's a road worth going on because I think it's so important to know what's happening in our bodies so we can, you know, live the best life we possibly can. 
but that's a huge barrier to being able to even just get diagnosed. So has, has the medical community, have they incorporated the mental health component of this illness as well yet, or is that still a little bit behind? Not quite yet. Um, unfortunately, again, you'd have to go to one of these like really great, and oftentimes the endometriosis specialists can't take insurance, and it's not even their fault the amount of time they have to give mm-hmm. patients insurance companies aren't supportive of that. Mm -hmm. So um, again, I was very lucky after, you know, 27 years of waiting, um, (laughs) but um, to find a doctor who gave me a multidisciplined approach. It's a whole body illness that affects every aspect of your life. So we should absolutely be looking at and dealing with the mental health aspect of it, um, the emotional trauma and what Mm -hmm. that does to you. Actually dealing with chronic pain and enduring it for year after year after year, it actually changes your brain and Mm -hmm. it is a really impactful experience in the body. So not only do we need to bring in nutritional support and, you know, physical therapy and we need to find out what companion illnesses have come along with this, this fun disease and with a lot of times the weight it takes to get diagnosed. Um, but we definitely need to be supporting a multidisciplinary approach to be able to help support people's lives because it there's no avenue of my life that has been untouched by this illness. Mm-hmm. I can imagine. So then what does treatment look like, Meg? Like if diagnosis is step one, what is actual treatment? There's several options for treatment, but there is one gold standard and it's the only thing that is really the absolute best, which is endometriosis excision surgery. So there are two different types of surgeries and I'm, you know, I'm not a doctor, I'm not an expert, but I've learned a lot about this. Mm-hmm. And so they're ablation and oftentimes insurance will cover ablation. But what ablation is, is they kind of, they come in and they burn the ends off. So it's like if you have, forgive the example, but like a weed in your garden is often what we, you know, if you just kind of trim that from the top, mm-hmm. it's going to grow back. But if you can get in there and get the roots out, then the chance of regrowth minimizes dramatically. Now, there are definitely people who have gotten ablation and they have felt better from that. So if that's what you can afford, I cannot tell someone they have to spend $20,000 on an excision surgery because that's often what it costs. So, you know, people have to do what they can do and what they're able to do. But it's important that we at least know and understand that the gold standard of treatment and the only thing that is absolutely going to remove it from your body is to go and to either, there are a few different places you can find these endometriosis excision um, surgeons and have it excised from your body. And what that looks like is a laparoscopic surgery and they put little keyholes in your stomach and they go in and they remove it and they try to get the roots of it. And That sounds scary, but it's much scarier to have an illness growing in your body, doing damage, Mm -hmm. not knowing what it's doing, um, not knowing how permanent a damage that it can do. And the recovery from that surgery can range anywhere from four weeks to four months. You know, it takes time to recover if you've gone for years and years with this growing in your body. Um, But a lot of people get ablation surgery or they have been really pushed to get a hysterectomy. And unfortunately, it doesn't really make sense if if it's cells similar to the lining of your uterus growing outside of your uterus, it doesn't make a ton of sense to remove the uterus and expect there to be change. Mm -hmm. Um, We discuss in the film, there is a condition called 
adenomyosis, which is very hard to pronounce, adenomyosis. <laughs> I've heard it said a few different ways. It's a tough one, guys. It's a tough one. I've barely mastered endo, but that is where you have and you have, you know, the endometriosis cells in the lining of your actual uterus. And so a hysterectomy can be the ultimate cure for that. But as the doctor says in my, in my short film, but if you have adenomyosis, you most likely also have endometriosis. So if they just remove the uterus, you might also still have pain outside of the uterus. Wow. So it's very complex and just the, the down and dirty of it is find an endo expert and get excision surgery. But it can cost a lot of money. My first surgery was $15,000. And when I called the insurance company and I couldn't work and I couldn't get out of bed, they said, no, endometriosis is just a bad period. That is so it almost sounds like, I mean, does the insurance company ever come around? If No. No. So it's just being recognized in a way. It's not. It's it's such a different understanding of what it is. they, as I said, they will sometimes cover ablation. So if that's what some, the only thing someone can do, you know, I mean, people have to do what they can, but unfortunately you might have to also then go back later and do it again. And sometimes ablation can cause other types of pain. You know, sometimes it's the burn, they burn off other parts of nerves or things that can cause other damage or be quite painful for people. This is devastating, Meg. It's really, it's not great. It's it's really a dark, hard thing. And the hope I offer is that people who have endometriosis are some of the strongest, most resilient, creative people that I have met. And being able to connect with that community, you can find a lot of comfort, uh, validation, solidarity, and then safe resources. And so I really recommend finding, like going up and even just looking some of the the Facebook support groups. That's how, you know, you can just talk patient to patient. Do you guys know this doctor? Um, and on endomission.org, I have a resource page with from mm-hmm. books to blogs to the websites you can go on to find a doctor in your area who can actually treat this. I mean, I, I bet it does feel so good to you to to have this experience and to feel so alone in your experience, right? Because you can't trust your body. It's like we're structurally gaslighting women. Like, yes. sorry, I'm getting all amped. Yeah, my heckles are up as well. Go for it. Uh-huh. Yeah, but we're real. like structurally gaslighting women. And then so everyone feels so they feel crazy for having an experience in their body that people are saying isn't there. So to find your community must have been such a gift, Meg. Oh, Amanda, it, I, the gaslighting that occurs is so traumatic because it is people in positions of power. Mm -hmm. You're in a position of crisis. Like you're in a position of crisis. You don't understand what's happening to your body. You are physically in anguish. It's confusing. It makes no sense. And you think about how it makes you feel, you know, about yourself. It, it, It really affects your confidence, your identity, your relationship with who you are. So when you have doctors that are putting you down or, or telling you it's in your head or it's, it's, it's anxiety, you're too stressed, what stress is happening in your life, it really does make you feel like maybe it's just me. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe it's just me. So to be able to connect with other people who are literally saying, Hey, does anyone feel XYZ? And you're like, Oh my gosh, I am not only am I not alone, but I had doctors making me feel like the most physically painful experience of my life that is equivalent to the worst pain you can imagine. 
was in my head, first, it makes you really angry. Mm -hmm. And that anger can be great because you know what? That anger is what you need because you're on the floor in the fetal position in such pain. And that anger can help get up, get on your feet, go to the computer, go to the doctor, go to your message boards, whatever it is where you can find community, you can find solidarity, and then you can find actions to take to support your physical health, your mental health, your emotional well-being. Use that anger. Tap into that anger. Leverage that anger. Women, it's about time we stop feeling guilty and bad about being angry Mm -hmm. and use it. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's general. Mm -hmm. And that is... And then also the other thing I will say is when I was in the desperate place of looking for care, at that point, it had been so long, I was at capacity for inflammation. My body was starting to actually shut down. So my partner, my husband is amazing. He advocated for me. So whether it's your parents or your sister or your best friend or your therapist, like lean in and ask for specific help with someone that you know believes you and trusts you. Because sometimes when you're at that point where you need help, you physically can't be on the phone with 20 different people or talking to their insurance company or looking up this location. Mm -hmm. So I had to kind of just give in and be like, you know what, I'm strong enough enduring this and surviving it. I'm going to let my husband have my back, call all these people, figure this out and take my ass to the doctor and make sure that we figure this out. You know, it's okay to lean on that help because it's a full-time job to just survive what you're experiencing. I have to say too, it made me, as you're talking about this, what I remember are friends of mine who would discover this during their fertility quest and just the magnitude of loss around pursuing fertility and struggling with that alone is so difficult. But then on top of it to find out there's a disease process happening and having to tackle that um, yeah. And even, you know, trying to decide whether or not to return to the fertility effort a lot of times, just yes. that, um, and, and that must be just so complicated and so, so devastating for so many women, especially at certain age, in a certain age group, right? When mm-hmm. having yeah. babies, mm-hmm. I would imagine. Well, that's absolutely, it was my desire to have a child that got me the answer that I needed, but because, um, So yeah, I have a really fun, super fun story that I'm sure has happened to so many people. So when I was 34, I went and got the, you know, just checkups just to make sure everything looked okay. So we, you know, we're trying to have a child and, and they, you know, so I went to the fertility clinic just to get everything kind of checked and they checked it out. And they said I had a little bit of like a lower, you know, egg count, but that I was good to go. And so three years later, I'm 37 and I, get a diagnosis and I, you know, I, I get this and I start to get more tests and they, they look and they say, Hey, I see that you had an endometrioma back from this fertility testing. They knew what at the fertility place they saw endometriosis. I did not know. They did not tell me and they just encouraged me to get more treatment. And are you serious, is, Meg? Yes, that is. Yes. And it was, uh, devastating to find that out. Those are three crucial years where I could have had my children during that time. And I've talked to other patients where that has happened. I just talked to a friend of mine who they know she has endometriosis, but they encourage her to just push through and do this anyway. There is a huge problem 
with that whole process. And I can absolutely speak to the emotional grief and trauma that comes with that. Mm-hmm. Um, my fertility was absolutely taken by endometriosis. And maybe that would be a little bit more digestible if I didn't feel that doctors could have prevented that by just merely believing me, just by merely telling me the truth. And that's one of the reasons why I also feel so compelled. That grief could just swallow me up alive. And I feel that it's actually part of my self-care to advocate for other people, um, mm-hmm. kind of like with that grief as fuel. But that is a big problem and it's not okay. And we should be having endometriosis experts talking to fertility clinics and working together mm-hmm. to treat the actual individual and not just treat women like we are procreating machines. Uh, It's just devastating and it makes me very sad and very angry at how dismissed our quality of life is. So Meg, what has it been like since you made this short film and it was, it's about 30 minutes. It has so much information and visually, I mean, you can see the pain, but you can also see the connection that you have, have made with these other people who are struggling and, and the experts that you have gotten on your side and who are great at communicating all this stuff. So as the film has rolled out, like how has it been to connect with these other people? And what has the film done for people? Because I'm sure there's so much hope in seeing the film if you had no idea and you thought you were alone. Yes. I wanted to make a film that if I were to have seen this at an earlier stage of my life, it would have answered my questions. You know what I mean? That was sort of the easiest way to approach it, but that expands to um, a lot of other people as well that would have a very different experience than me. I did this thinking I want to help other people, but it has been a catharsis and healing mm-hmm. that I did not anticipate. I have to say to, first of all, I filmed myself a lot most of those times thinking, I'll never show this to anyone. This is just for myself. So I could get really intimate and really real. Mm -hmm. So while editing the film to look back and see those moments, it gave me a self-compassion that is on a whole other level where you're kind of looking at a different person because you're looking at a screen and I could just see, oh my gosh, like I can't believe all that we endure. Like it really validates the darkness and the anguish that we experience. To be able to connect with some of the top experts in the world on endometriosis, who happen to be the two surgeons and the two doctors who have treated me, they're amazing. And I've learned so much. I feel so empowered over my own body. I feel I have more agency over Mm -hmm. my own chronic illness from just talking with them. And to be able to connect with other patients who have turned their pain into action and advocacy, it's validating. You know what I mean? It just feels like instead of feeling like you're some meek, weak, weird thing who has all this gross stuff. It's like, no, I am one of the most badass people in the world. And I am in a community of incredible people. Like what resilient, amazing humans I am surrounded by in this community. And it it really has been healing in a way I did not anticipate. And, um, and I've learned so much. It's expanded my understanding of different healthy rituals I could bring into play. What self-care can be. Sometimes self-care is the housewives. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Sometimes the best workout you can do is rolling on your foam roller, as Jessica Renan always says. Like Sometimes we just need to adjust our expectations and look and say, 
I'm going to do my best, but my best might be different because my body's different and that's okay. When we adjust those expectations, we can live such a more satisfied, happy life because we're no, no longer sort of denying where the bar is for ourselves. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And through this process, I've learned to like have a conversation with myself. You know what I mean? Like I check and I'm like, Hey girl, how are you doing? No, what do you really need today, boo? Like to my own <laughs> self, you know what I mean? Like, and so that relationship with ourselves is also like the most important thing in life, right? You know, even as a parent, like you, you got to be good with yourself first before mm-hmm. you can you know, be good to your kids. So when you're dealing with a chronic illness that looks different each day, it feels different at like 12 different points during the day. You have to really work on that practice of returning to yourself and just being like, Hey boo, what do you need? Okay. You know what I mean? Like, you're all right. Like, what do you need right now? And, 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 and not worrying about what other people think. That's what a lot of these other amazing endo warriors, patients, whatever people want to you know call themselves have taught me is just like, I don't need to be embarrassed at all. Like there's just mm-hmm. such mm-hmm. beauty and being like unabashedly just doing what you've got to do to take care of yourself. Yes. Women feel like they need to explain themselves way too often, mm-hmm. actually. Totally. Totally. I am sitting here with a, a heating pad on my stomach and an ice pack on my head. What's up, girl? No, not right now. I'm just saying that when that happens, it's like you just, you know, you own it. And it's like taking pride in that and seeing that that's really kind of empowering and badass that like you prioritize yourself like that. Just reframing that can be pretty great. Mm-hmm. And if people could learn that at a younger age than 40, hey, I think that that's probably giving them a little bit more of an empowering approach to self-compassion. Yeah, absolutely. That I mean, just all those things are so powerful. And to, to learn young is so is so much more helpful. We preach that a lot on our end, mm-hmm. I know. So yeah. I, I have a quick question about the genetics piece of this. What do you understand? What what is the research indicating about that now? Is is there more information available around genetics and, and what people yes. can share, you know, as far yes. as that goes? If someone in your family, a mom, an aunt, a grandmother, a sister, a cousin, if somebody has endometriosis, you are seven times more likely to have endometriosis. And they're finding that often it's passed on at birth. So my doctors believe that the GI issues that I had in elementary school were endometriosis. My mom had endometriosis. She barely even knew it because she was having a hard time getting pregnant. The doctor just said, you're going to get a little procedure. And then she was dismissed. She never knew the word. She never wow. had any idea. Yeah. So it wasn't until I was diagnosed and I learned and she was like, that's, that's what I had. So this has been empowering for my mom as well, which mm-hmm. is exciting. I feel like I'm advocating for the generations that have come before us who have not known. And you think about that. My mom, a privileged white woman, if she got that care, when I was speaking with Kyla Cantazar, my amazing co-star in the film, she was saying, just think of how many of our mothers and grandmothers as black women didn't get the mm-hmm. diagnosis. So if I'm going to say it again, if anyone in your family has endometriosis, you are seven times more likely to have it. So get a family discount plan and go to the endometriosis specialist because it is absolutely genetic. And I'm sure those numbers will increase as we finally mm-hmm. begin to research this, as we finally begin to even look at this but it's absolutely genetic. So Meg, where can we find you? Where can people, where can parents and where can, you know, teenagers who might be listening, but parents go and find out more about this? Yes, because you keep saying reach out to the experts, but you are our expert. I know. You sound like <laughs> yes. you know a ton. 
I know what's up and I have gathered some of the best experts and the most kind, empowering, beautiful like leaders in this community and put them on the resource page at endomission.org. That's also where you can see the film Blood and Guts Exposing Endo. And there's just a lot of support from the right type of CBD oil that can help manage chronic pain and anxiety that comes with this to literally Nancy's Nook website where you can go find accredited doctors that we have given the thumbs up on to uh, know your endo book by Jessica Murnane. That's like the book you should have in your bed with you to learn about it. There, everything I have in one spot so you can find out about it. There's also a course like you can contact me through the website and I'm there to help people. I that's also why I made this film is it's becoming a part-time job to just talk with people who have endo, try to help them, connect them with the right information. So I thought, let's just put something together so we can help as many people in the shortest amount of time possible. So they have more hope and more help than I do. Um, and support, like support is so important. So many patients have written into me and they said, I'm going to take this film and I'm going to show my husband. I'm going to show my family because oh, they great. don't know, wow. they don't understand what I'm going through. And if this film can help validate your experience and validate your pain, whoever is listening to this, that's why I made it. I believe you. I know that what you're going through is real. And sometimes it feels hopeless and you feel helpless. But there is a sea of amazing people out there. And we want to help. And we want you to get in the right hands. And you will. So just hang in there. And if you have one or two friends that you know love you, look them in the eye and say, I need help. I need you to believe me and I need to be able to share this with you. You can't do this alone and you need help. So I really encourage people to just have your own back, find these resources, write to me if you need to, and make sure that you have at least one or two people who believe you and know that what you're going through is real, even if they don't understand it. Well, this was insanely informative. I um, and motivated to continue to talk to folks that I think are young, maybe in this process, right? And figure yes. this out, I think. I might text you some questions I have after we have. Yes. Yeah, I'm just no, thinking absolutely. about the, the, we need to add this to a part of our questions. I think so too. When we meet young women, um, just to see if they've ever even, you know, if they're having some of these presenting issues. I mean, so it's 10, and when we think about it, 10% of the people that walk through the door, the women yeah. that walk through the door, but because we see folks with anxiety, depression, mental health concerns, it's probably higher. It's probably even more, 100%. I mean, I definitely have anxiety too. Like it, that runs in my family as well, but there is so much of this that has been endometriosis. And if one of those therapists or one of those, had, you know, school nurses knew about endometriosis or it asked about my periods or asked about the GI issues. I mean, you just never know what that could do. I'm in talks right now with a local school system to try to, you know, talk to high school students to try to just like start in my own hometown and just try to help that way because it's, it's so important. And if we can empower people at a younger age, I mean, this is so painful and causes such anguish. It can even create like you want to disassociate from your own body sometimes. Mm -hmm. And and sometimes you have to, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. But if we can help people be able to like connect and just be in safer hands, they just can navigate their life with more agency, more choices. And, you know, having kids is not for everybody. It might not be what people want to do. But if it is what you want to do, my doctor, Dr. Orbach was saying, sometimes if she has a 20-year-old, 
She'll even just start the conversation of freezing your eggs. So you have options. Mm -hmm. It should be the choice of a person, an individual to choose if and when they want to have children. And I have fought for, you know, pro-choice my whole life. And I feel that this is a reproductive justice situation. If we're having forced hysterectomies and fertility Mm -hmm. taken away because we don't believe women, misogyny broken down means the mistrust of women. And that is literally killing us. So it needs to end now. And I really thank you guys for having this conversation. So this can definitely be a start to helping end that. Meg, I'm so excited. I'm going to literally like clip the last part about yeah. misogyny and not trusting women. I I'm going that for needs it. to be our t-shirts now. Right? Yes. And, and yes. I want to add that I just wish I could be in a time machine and see you in Amanda in high school. Oh, oh my we'll put pictures. We'll put up pictures. Okay. Don't worry. Yeah, don't worry. We have pictures. We might even have some video. So it'll be great. You'll be thrilled yeah. by my bangs as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh. Thank you so much, Meg. We'll talk to you soon. I love you. And so thank you. you for sharing this with us. Meg, thank you, thank so you guys much. so much for the great work that you're doing. This is awesome. I'm so honored and so proud of you both. Thank you. Bye, y'all.